This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Razib with the Unsupervised uh, Learning Podcast here. And um, I am here with Trent Colbert. And uh, if you go to Google News, uh, you can find him or some of the links that uh, I'm putting here. But um, Trent, could you just introduce yourself really quickly for the listeners? Yeah, sure. I'm Trent Colbert. I'm a second year student at Yale Law. And uh, I'm also in a few different clubs. I'm the social chair for the Native American Law Students Association, and I'm a vice president of membership for FedSoc. And those two roles came a little bit to a head recently with an email I sent to a party, and I think that might be why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, for the for the scientists out there who, who don't know what FedSoc is, Federalist Society, uh, you know, kind of is generally understood to be cons- more conservative, kind of an association of conservative lawyers and law students. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty big deal uh, when it comes to Republicans when they nominate for the Supreme Court and whatnot. That's probably where you've heard about it from. And, you know, Trent is a you know, member of it. So that's that's what that is. Uh, so, yeah. Can you tell us uh, why you are a thing, why you are trending the whole Yale Law School fiasco? Yeah, sure. So I, like I said before, I'm the social chair for the Native American Law Students Association at Yale. And one of the things that we do is that we set up parties, we set up social events, and of course, we send out emails to invite people to those. And as the resident Zoomer at my law school, I tend to have a little bit less of a professional cadence in my emails. So it's a little more casual, a little less sanitized. It's kind of how I like it. And one of my recent emails for a mixer between the Native American students, we call it NALSA, and the Federal Society, we call that FedSoc, involved me calling my house the NALSA Trap House. It's actually a term I've used to describe my house for months without incident, but this time now that it's in an email, some people got mad, and I got reported to the Office of Dis- Discrimination and Harassment, and I had a few meetings with them. They tried to tell me that it was racist, that it was actually a blackface party, and that therefore I needed to apologize and admit to that. I didn't want to. They made some vague threats about the bar. I still didn't want to, and I decided I'd tell my story, and a lot of people resonated with that story. So I guess mm-hmm. that's kind of why I'm trending these days. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, And so just for non-American listeners, uh, the bar... You know, that's what, you know, law graduates, uh, JDs, they have to take a test that shows that they know the law well enough so they can enter the bar and then practice as a lawyer. Um, The context that I saw around uh, what's going on at Yale and around Trent is uh, there are implicit, sometimes maybe explicit threats about his future, uh, his professional future. So uh, he, Trent here is at the I mean, no offense, Harvard, the number one law school in the country by many rankings. Uh, it is a really big deal. Um, this is the place where Supreme Court justices justices go. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot on the line uh, for someone like him in terms of what the outcomes of his uh, life could be. And uh, that seemed to be uh, the subtext here. Uh, and the undertone. And one of the interesting reactions um, that I've been seeing online 
like I'm going to be entirely frank. When I first saw the story, uh, before you know, I got I heard about it in detail. I kind of like eye rolled because I'm like, uh, this person will be totally destroyed, and uh, people online will say, well, that's good actually, and here's why. Um, it seems like this has gone beyond um, the usual cancellation, and people like David Lott at Above the Law who I think is liberal, um, and he seems to be expressing a lot of concern. Uh, Mark Joseph Stern at Slate, who uh, definitely liberal, uh, he also seems to be expressing a lot of concern. So this seems to have crossed certain lines uh, with the way, I mean, I guess we could say you were being bullied, you were being intimidated. Um, ultimately, there's no wrongdoing, but um, now when you Google Trent Colbert, this is this is what comes up, not um, you know whatever achievements in law school he might have, and uh, this is this is kind of a big deal. The reason I'm talking to Trent though um, is I kind of want to get a sense of okay, why did he stand up for himself uh, against this institution, this machine, uh, which is which is swallowing um, you know American higher education, the academy in many ways, DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, this huge bureaucracy uh, that's intimidating professors. Uh, usually it's coming from administrators, but there's some administrators caught up and, and students uh, also are fearing it. And he's standing up uh, to it for whatever reason. So um, Trent, uh, you are described as a Native American law student and you talked about your affiliation um, with the Native American group on campus. Uh, it, can I ask you like, you know, what is your tribal background, your, you know, the nation or whatnot that you come from and like, like what is your relation? Cause there, there's some people who I know who are Native American or part Native American and, you know, typical suburban kid. Right. Um, and so I was wondering like, what's your background? Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually Cherokee on my dad's side through his mom. So I learned a lot about wolves in particular and different stuff of the forest as I was growing up. But I actually have a kind of weird relationship with my heritage in that my dad actually was very much not into embracing our Native American heritage. He wanted to just kind of live as a normal person, so to speak, normal in quotes, in uh, the Seattle area. While my grandmother is always very, very strongly connected with our heritage, with our roots. So it was always a bit of a tension there. I always, I honestly, I sided more with my grandmother growing up. And once she died, my dad ended up coming around and wanting to reconnect as well. So growing up, I didn't have a strong connection with a bigger Native American community because I don't know if your listeners know this, but Cherokees are usually more connected with the Southeast of the United States. And we're from, I grew up in the Northwest. So we didn't really have that big community growing up. I was able to get plugged in with the Native Americans at my uh, at my school, and I was able to really enjoy that community and see my heritage from a more uh, full perspective. And when I came to Yale, I wanted to have that same community. So that's why I've been affiliated with the Native American Law Students Association while I'm here. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. When you said Cherokee, uh, I was gonna say I was assuming Oklahoma or maybe the South, but uh, I'm actually from the Pacific Northwest too. I'm from Oregon, so um, you know I, I do know that there's some you know obviously like Eastern Washington, uh, there's some reservations and also the I think the Quinault or they're they're Olympic Peninsula, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
Okay, so that, so that's interesting. So for you, um, your ethnic identity is, you know, it's it's just part of your heritage, it's part of your culture. Uh, obviously, it's something you connect to, uh, but it's not like. Y- y- would you describe yourself as an ethnic active? You know what I'm saying? There's a certain type of like activist that they're super into their identity or whatnot. I mean, are you like that or not like that? I mean, I'm not even asking pejoratively. I'm just I'm just curious. Honestly, I, I don't think I'm I'm like that. I have plenty of non-native american friends and i i don't think that my ethnic identity is above everything else if if that's what you mean by that but i know that mm. some people really push for that in particular okay okay yeah yeah i mean and i've seen that in some of the some of the stories and um i think one of the uh, administrators that you had to deal with uh they were quite explicit that your native american identity was definitely in your favor in this, in this, in this whole, you know, in, you know, this whole controversy, right? Yeah, one of them I think said that the fact that I'm not white made things really complicated, and honestly, I, I was, it made me a little uncomfortable. That it felt kind of weird to have myself reduced to something like that. That's just what he's what he's seeing in me was my race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I got that. Uh, so, um, you know, why um, why did you join the Federalist Society? Like, were you raised in a conservative household, or did you come to conservatism in undergrad? I mean, uh, tell me about that. Yeah, so my dad's always been kind of conservative. My mom, less so. But I grew up in, I guess, a bit of a conservative bubble in Western Washington. So I was always around those ideas, and I was able to see both sides that way because I was in the conservative bubble in school but the rest of the community around me was was less so and as I grew up I at least for me I kind of decided that conservatism seems more reasonable than the other side so Mm -hmm. I stuck with it Mm -hmm. and have you um have you gotten any so you're a zoomer you're you're super young uh uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't know what, what campuses are like anymore. I, like the last time I was on campus very often was in the mid teens before the awakening. Um, what's it like, uh, Ben being on the right on campus? I mean, did you get much flack for it or, you know, or did you keep a low profile? I don't, I don't know. I just, I just kind of want to know your, you know, just your experience. Yeah. For the most part, I kind of kept a low profile. I wouldn't like lie about what I am, but it never really came up much because, after you go through your freshman orientation, everyone wants to have their little philosophical discussions. After those two weeks, you don't really talk politics much with random friends. You just talk about school stuff, party stuff. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I was conservative wasn't really something that came up much. People would find out at some point because I would be in the college Republicans and someone would see me at a meeting. But I don't really think I got much flack for it because... First and foremost, I was the local meme lord, not okay. the local. You need to, you, yeah, you you need to tell uh, <laughs> you need to tell the listeners older than twenty five or thirty what that means. Yeah, so I guess I I was kind of an internet kid, so I would be able to make a lot of jokes with internet kind of things. I would be able to point at what's funny in a situation, kind of make fun of it. So. It, I never really came off very serious. I know, I know of a, 
I know what you're talking about in terms of what type of person you are in terms of people I've interacted with on the internet, but you know, you're a little on the younger side. Uh, you know, I mean, you probably don't know, remember very much what it was like before smartphones, right? Yeah, not too much, but yeah, I'm not really much of a nihilist in, but I guess that's how it comes off because I, I find the light in any, pretty much anything. I find the parts of it that bring me joy, but as far as actual philosophies go, I'm a Presbyterian. I, I wasn't always in the church, but I grew up in the church for most of my life since I was probably about six or seven. Okay. So, so that, that might be also part of why I'm more conservative because mm-hmm. it, it matches my values a bit better. Well, so is it Presbyterian Church in America or Presbyterian Church USA? Uh, I think it's Presbyterian Church in America. Okay. Okay. Or, yeah, I think the USA one is that's the one that's more more leftist. I don't pay too much attention to the specific kinds as far as the uh, the name dropping goes to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that's uh the USA one is uh is the more uh mainline I think is what they say, but yeah, it's more liberal. So I just curious. So so you're 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 a Presbyterian kid, uh you know, Native American ancestry and it's obviously part of your heritage, you're conscious of it. And here you are a uh, Zoomer um at Yale. And so what I'm getting in this conversation so far is there might have been a generational difference, a generational conflict here. But um, to be entirely frank, the people that narked on you were of your own generation, right? Or am I wrong? Uh, I'm not actually sure entirely because I don't, even now, I don't know exactly who all the people were that that reported me. I think I'm, again, pretty young for being in law school. I'm, I'm 23 now, and I'm pretty sure... Maybe some people were a similar age to me, but I think a lot of them were several years older. And as far as the internet is concerned, several years can be a lifetime as far as the way you read things. I see. So so I think what you're getting at here is like sometimes there's references, there's pointers you're making, and it makes total sense to someone that's plus or minus one to two years. And then outside of that window... it might make no sense or they might take it totally different. But I mean, this whole idea of the trap house. Uh, uh, okay. Like that's, that's, that seems crazy. Like, I mean, does someone hate you? I mean, I'm just trying to understand here, like why someone would go there. Uh, yeah. Can you help me out with that? Cause it's just like, that doesn't seem like, you know, I'm a totally different generation than you. And that's not what I would be always thinking about. That would be someone who's looking for racism. Yeah, and honestly, I didn't get it either until I one of the directors spent 20 minutes trying to explain this mythology to me. Because to me, Trap House always meant Party House. And even I think there's a podcast called Chapo Trap House that isn't even a Zoomer thing. It's, uh, it's, it's millennials. millennials. I would think that it would be pretty common to understand as a non-racist phrase. But no. Apparently, according to uh, the administration here, trap house actually means it trap house themed party, which actually means blackface party, because somewhere in the South, frat boys exist who listen to trap music. They like trap music and they're white, but when they listen to trap music, some of them put charcoal on their faces, and because of that mythology, that. I had never even heard of before that moment because of that mythology, any instance of the phrase trap house means 
blackface party. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's, again, to people outside of this social con- context, I think this is going to sound crazy, but you're not making this up. This, I think this is the true chain of offense, I guess. And so um, to be explicit, especially for non-Americans, because they do tend to get a little confused as to what we're talking about in terms of it just seems inexplicable to them. So the issue here is there is a philosophy in a lot of American academia uh, that it's not really what you intend, um, and it's not even what's clearly substantively there, but it's how other people interpret it through their own filter, and that causes some sort of harm, some sort of trauma. And so the accusation here is through this uh, transitivity of evil, I guess, or harm, or negativity, racism, through this sequence that you just outlined, someone was harmed by it, therefore someone caused her- harm, therefore you need to apologize. Like, do you think that I'm characterizing it correctly? Yeah, I think you're characterizing characterizing it correctly. So, you know, this is the stage where, um, you know, they kind of wanted a pro forma fake apology, which a lot of people do. Uh, a lot of these apologies, if they are public, uh, they look like hostage, like, you know, letters written while you were take, being taken hostage. Uh, but, you know, the reality is I think a lot of them are not public uh, in terms of, you know, cancellations and these sorts of like denunciations and call outs. Uh, it, a lot of it is silent and we don't really know what's going on. Um, and that's how people want it. Like, you know, people who are targeted themselves, uh, they don't want people to know. So for example, uh, I know people who lost jobs and had to change careers but um, nobody knows who these people are. They're anonymous to the rest of the world. And they don't ever want people to know because then their references might disappear because they rely on those references for jobs still, even if their old career and their old network uh, is gone because of what happened to them. Um, so I think for you, I mean, okay, why did you not apologize? Wouldn't have made it all go away? Or, I mean, like, what were you thinking? Yeah, I guess... What I was thinking is that I I didn't want to apologize. It wasn't something that was attractive to me. It didn't it felt the idea of it felt yucky, like I would be admitting to something terrible and false. But at the same time, I was recognizing that if I was gonna be doing this, it was gonna be a bit of a bit of pressure on my hands. So I, I had to think about it for a bit about how I was going to handle this. Cause I, I guess I was thinking that I was talking over with my friends. They were very supportive. And I, I was thinking that a lot of people are secretly fed up with this stuff and they think it's crazy and absurd, but they're waiting for someone to give them permission to resist it. And it's hard to stand alone, but when there's a rallying point, it becomes a lot easier. And the more people who speak out, the more people become, uh, more people become willing to do so it's i think it's sometimes called a preference cascade this principle is expressed in the classic story of the emperor's new clothes of course but you see it in real life too one famous example is the romanian revolution which which occurred when some random tumult started in the crowd during a speech that dictator nikolai chokescu was giving and all of a sudden it snowballed into a revolution a more recent example was was brett kavanaugh's confirmation where Everyone thought his career was over after uh, Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, but his willingness to stand up for himself forcefully encouraged other people to push back, 
then you had Lindsey Graham give his speech and others followed. Then all of a sudden you had the whole of the American right fall in behind him, united in a way that they almost never are. Standing up for yourself in the face of a mob is a, is a very powerful thing when you're clearly right. And you shouldn't underestimate it. You just have to play it smart. And since I was able to talk to my friends, I recognized that they had my back. They were going to be there for me no matter uh, what I had to deal with. And I know my own mom, she had a similar kind of thing back when she was back when she was teaching. Someone got offended with her and tried to demand she apologize, and she didn't. And I guess I I just felt that I can't I can't just go and betray uh, my own principles and be a coward. I guess. Yeah, and you know what you're saying. I think most people would not want to be a coward in that moment, uh, and most people would want to. I don't know. Um, they, they they would hope that they do the right thing, but that right thing is hard. I think um, currently, I would say the fallout f- to you, from what I have seen, has not been nearly as bad uh, as in other cases. It seems, in a way, uh, you know, they're liberal, you know, lawyers who are defending you, saying that Yale was way out of line. So it's not. Um, you're not being like you know confronted with an avalanche here, and in fact, yeah, maybe you are triggering a, a preference cascade. Uh, you're you know the falsification is now being exposed, and a lot of people are saying this is crazy. Now, um, you know, uh, I think Aaron Sabarium at the Free Beacon pointed out a lot of this is due to the way the laws are interpreted about harassment and you know a hostile environment. But aside from that, okay, so like this is what happened. This is what people um would like to do um so i'm i'm kind of curious i want to ask you like okay like why do you think you specifically trent uh put your foot down here cuz you know and and i want to be clear you're not at a oklahoma state no offense to oklahoma state you're not at oklahoma state you're not at a low tier law school uh, you're at yale you could be somebody you know like there's there's a lot riding riding on like the choices you make right now because this is where the american ruling class is uh is formed and comes together right so the decisions you make are a really big deal um and so i i I do think yeah um you know i think it's worked out i i think the the right one out here in my opinion my personal opinion but before you before you make that choice you know so many people they're not making the choice that you're making. Oh, why aren't they making that? Like, are you just a particularly courageous person? Do you have a particularly tight knit circle of friends? Um, have you just been online so much that uh, you're entirely cynical about all the performativity that's going on? I don't know. Like, could you speak to that at all? Yeah, I guess this whole situation is something that I never expected that I'd be in. Because among other things, I'm actually a pretty private person. I don't, I don't even have Twitter. I don't, I don't go out picking fights for, I don't go out picking fights over political things. Like I, like I said before, I, for the most part, flew under the radar. But uh, one of the things I do have is that I, I stand pretty strongly with my principles. I think that might have a connection with my, my Christian background, where I think it's very important to do the right thing. And even my mom, who made it made an effort to uh, to stand by her principles, even when she thought that it would bring sacrifices, and that there's 
there's something important about doing what's right, even if it, even if it's tough, even if it's unpopular. And I guess one other thing I had in my back pocket was that my friends, they all, one of the things they did to help out is that we looked up all the Yale rules together about discrimination, harassment, and we realized that they had nothing on me. I had reached out to, to fire and they confirmed the same. So I knew that if we had to get to a fight and they were really going to keep pushing that even if the media wasn't on my side, we'd still have a pretty good chance at avoiding the, the negative consequences. And, and besides, apologizing wouldn't have helped anything anyways. I don't think that anyone would have been satisfied with whatever apology I would have made. It would have been more like shark smelling blood in the water. And that if I sent out the apologies, especially the one that they had given me to send out, that would have been tantamount to admitting to racism, admitting to the blackface party they tried to say I was throwing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's a very important point. Um, I think, uh, you know, there is a maxim never apologize and, you know, I, I don't think people should take it absolutely. Um, and I think you said in, or something I read somewhere that, you know, if you thought that you had done something wrong, you would have apologized, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just didn't think you did anything wrong. And you know, what you're saying here is if you had apologized, it wouldn't have made anything better anyways. They weren't looking for apology, right? Like, I mean, it, it, there was always, there was a machine. Okay, this is my perception. There was a machine that had gotten triggered. The machine was rolling now. And it feeds on things like apologies. That, that's, that's my perception. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. There's something out there that just wants to collect apologies. I don't know if this analogy is, is apt or not, but I kind of imagine it like, like battle trophies. They people want apologies not not because they really think that that's going to make some kind of resolution better but it's more like submission they want people to bend the knee i don't know how else to say it but yeah. i think i think the administrators they said something along the lines of we don't want to look like an ineffective source of resolution and to me that read like they wanted to push someone to submit and they were picking me mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And, and you know i i think one of the things that i uh, suspect is like it's not just about you specifically uh it's gonna happen you know randomly to people every year they're gonna offend um someone somewhere and then the machine will start and one of the interesting or maybe not interesting is not the right word is you know there are people who say offensive things and somehow they don't get reported and i don't think that there's necessarily any conscious difference it's just that sometimes it's just random like things happen to people it's kind of senseless and you kind of seem to have stopped the machine at this point right i like to think so i think part of one of those differences might even be that the apology machine doesn't like to fail so they'll so it'll target people that they think that they can get. Again, it's not just about me stopping the machine for myself. I think I, I owe it to the next person who might be in my position, who the apology machine might come for here. And mm -hmm. I, I really hope that maybe I haven't destroyed the machine, but I've thrown enough of a wrench in there that it'll be broken down for at least a bit. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things that happens here is... Uh, these social media storms, you become famous, uh, you trend. Uh, 
the administrators have also trended uh, and not in a good way, <laughs> you know? And so I, I do think you're right. I think you're right. I, I think it's going to make people, you know, think twice about doing this in the future because, you know, uh, just I think from a legal perspective, you know, uh, the vast majority of, of cases, whatever they, you know, criminal cases, they plea out. Right. Um, and yeah. so uh, that's just what happens. I think they were expecting you to plea out. Uh, but you fought and, you know, knock on wood, it seems like you kind of won. I mean, there's going to be no official sanction on you anyway. That's you won there. Now it's all about public relations of the media, right? Yeah. And and if you, um, I don't know, I mean, if you just keep, you know, doing your studies and graduating and whatever, like, uh, you know, people might Google you, but they'll see that you were kind of in the right. Like you did, you did what you thought was the right thing. You showed integrity. I mean, I'm probably biased because, you know, kind of on your side anyway. Right. But like to be entirely frank. But so I wonder, um, what about what about the other students? Um, you know, can you tell me, like, if you got any feedback from them? Has it been silence? Has it been shock? Has it been anger? Has it been confusion? Has it been all of those? Well, on the one hand, I have a lot of classmates who even from the beginning were more or less in the shadows who would send me messages of encouragement saying things like, sorry, you have to go through this. There are more people on your side than you think. Well, on the other hand, I've been publicly denounced by almost every racial affinity group and Yale Law women to the, uh, the school-wide listserv. By name, and those messages also praise the administrators that I had dealt with. And, it, and even beyond that, there has been a movement to get me impeached from my elected position as a second-year uh, student representative. I'm not sure if that movement's still going. I, the uh, student representatives have provisionally uh, adopted the article of our draft constitution that deals with impeachment proceedings, but no one has submitted impeachment articles against me yet as far as I know. So maybe that's, that's dying down. But I wouldn't say that at least on the public face, the students have been very... Uh, on my side. Mm -hmm. Well, so what I'm getting from here, there's a public-private distinction, um, you know, where privately people will be like, yeah, but they're not going to stick their own neck out like you did. Exactly. I think I think that's it. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, ultimately, uh, that's sad. I'm not surprised. But, I mean, don't you think in a way that's kind of showing the power of the system still? Yeah, I think it, I think that does really show the, show the power of the system, the... Uh... The idea that standing with me makes you some kind of racist or some kind of supporter of racism. So, I mean, I think one thing we're seeing here, like I just I would conjecture, you're seeing like a tyranny of a minority uh, of, of activists that are indulged by the administration, indulged by the culture, indulged by the media uh, over a silent majority. Uh, and you're, you're part of the majority, but you're not silent. Um, my main... Um, pessimistic thought in relation to this is uh, that uh, silent majorities are useless unless they can actualize uh, their opinions and actually execute in some way and make their opinions known, make their opinions public in some way. Um, do you see any way, uh, you know, look, I know you're a law student, you got other things going on. You're not like a public commentator. You've just been thrown into all of this, but you know, I'm sure you've been having some thoughts now about everything that's going on around you. You have a, you know, lived experience, Trent. Uh, do you, do you think there's any way that, um, they're going to be able to somehow make their, 
make their views known to people because now you know. And I can tell you as somebody who's been in academia, uh, who was politically heterodox, as they say, a lot of people will privately tell me things that they would never say to other people, but they're never going to say it to other people. And so people can say, oh, those no one has those opinions. You're just making it up. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, yeah. do, you, do you think there's any way that these people are ever going to, like, come out of the shadows someday? I'm not sure. I'm a little bit hopeful that all this media attention and the one-sidedness of at least the world outside of Yale Law, I, I hope that this will show everyone that uh, this is a silent majority. It isn't just you supporting me. It isn't just anonymous student who supports me who's also alone, there is a, a large group of people that sees that sees what I've been going through and they see that it's not right what that's going to turn yeah. into. But I think that hopefully there will be someone else who will stand with me if anything comes up again and that, that will build the momentum. But as of yet, at the very least, I'm hopeful that people are seeing that they're not silent minority. They're actually part of silent majority. Yeah. So, um, you know, I am hopeful. Uh, obviously, I hope that this is going to turn out really well for you in terms of you can just live your normal life instead of having to deal with this crap. And, you know, you won't be doing podcasts, you know, next year in any way. Uh, but, but you know, the pessimistic part of me, the, the, the thing that I would worry about you, if I were your friend, is you are now a public person. You have a target on your back. Uh, and anything you do or say can be interpreted by you know, bad actors in negative ways. I've seen this happen to people. I mean, a little of it's happened to me. I'm going to be entirely candid. Um, I have to be get very careful about what I say because people are watching and they're not going to be charitable. You know? um, uh, do you worry about that I'd at all? I probably worry about it less than I should. But if the email that started this all is any indication, my, uh, my aesthetic has never been being primped and preened with the emails I send out. So I, I think about it, but at the same time, I think that this is the the nature, this is the the me that got me where I am today, and I don't think I'm gonna throw away my identity over something like this. Mm. So I think I'm gonna stay true to myself and hope my friends don't worry too much about me. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think that's that's probably. Uh, the key from, I mean, I don't know you well. Yeah. I don't really know you at all before I, I talked to you today. You know, <laughs> uh, I know of you as a person in the news. And so um, <laughs> I think like, talking to you, you, you're obviously clear, like a down to earth person. You're true to yourself. And uh, that I think is the, uh, if, if I had to like nail down one thing, yes, you have like supportive network and everything like that. But if you weren't true to yourself, you know, you wouldn't be here. Uh, you, I, I don't know what would have happened. I think maybe worse things would have happened in a way because sometimes people are too clever. They think that just like yeah. this, doing this little white lie will fix everything and it won't, right? But you're true to, you've been true to yourself and uh, that's why you're here. That's why you didn't apologize. Um, that's why you didn't admit to something that you didn't do. Now, the irony, what you just said here is you didn't admit it to it. You denied it. And they basically said that, there's going to be no action against you, but you've been denounced now. Like the, you've been called the R word, you know, and I'm not talking to the one that Taylor, uh, Taylor Lorenz or whatever her name is, uh, dislikes. I'm talking about a different R word. And, uh, once that's been spoken, it can't be unspoken. Um, and so that is what it is. And, uh, I, I hope you can move past it, obviously. Um, and in terms of the listeners, uh, I just want to say like, you know, here's a man, here's, here, here's someone, uh, just a regular person, a kid. I mean, 
no offense. I mean, I know you're legally an adult, but <laughs> you're very young. <laughs> and uh, you you stood up to um, the bureaucracy of Yale Law School with some help, you know, to be fair. And you did it. And, uh, you know, it's not over, uh, but it's not horrible. And you did the right thing. And, you know, 20, 30 years from now, you can tell your children about this and you could say you did the right thing. And that is something. Uh, just everyone out there, if you're confronted with this sort of situation, uh, think about what you would tell your friends and your family, what you tell your children and your grandchildren. You know, think about what they'll think about you and what they'll know about you. Uh, think about the future. Uh, think about the the future of our society and our civilization and what it's based on. You know, truth, justice, the American way, all that stuff. It's corny, but it's true. And um, I am obviously a uh, realistic person. Uh, I think I've expressed some pessimism here because uh, I wanted to be balanced. Uh, but, uh, you know, Trent, um, it's been my pleasure talking to you. I hope people get out of this conversation uh, a model, a model for how to behave in this world where we're being overwhelmed by, um, you know, these memes and mobs that are coming at us, just a world of insanity. And, uh, you know, I just want them to take a lesson from you. So thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. This podcast for kids. Favorite.